Good morning. So, you know, uh, uh, as you uh, get ready for Sunday when you're up here preaching, you practice and you practice and you practice. And, and so uh, the very first note in, in uh, my sermon notes says, immediately following the children's prayer time. And I thought I had this all figured out. <laughs> and, you know, and of course, it's not, uh, it's, it's never our plan that succeeds. It's God's plan. And, and actually, we're going to spend some time talking about that. But I want to go back to um, that children's prayer time. It's actually, it's got to be my favorite time in the service. I love how excited those children are. You know, I'm asking them, why do you, why do you come up here? Why do you come to church? And, and do you like it? And their heads are all nodding and they're excited. And usually when you, you see them running down and, and you hear the, you know, and, and it's all over and it feels like a fire drill, like a bunch of seats had just caught on fire and they're running away from their seats and they're coming down here. And in fact, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if you, you caught this, but uh, one of the little boys was running down here as fast as he can. And don't worry, mom, I won't tell who. And, um, and he gets to about, uh, you know, almost halfway down and he loses his shoe. He kicks off his shoe and he runs around. He makes it around the corner before he notices and he looks back and you could see the wheels turning in his head. And he's like, do I go back and get my shoe? I mean, I might actually miss prayer time. And he and he pauses for a second and then he runs back and gets his shoe. But I thought for a minute he was he wasn't going to do that. And and I just love how excited our children are to be here. And and as as uh, one young man said this morning, he goes, to learn about Jesus, to learn about Jesus. That's why they love being here. And I hope you love being here in just the same way. In fact, if you came to Sunday, you came to church on Sunday, and you were a little bit disheveled and unkept because you were in such a hurry to get here on time for worship, that would just be a great thing to me, to be like those kids. Let's pray. Heavenly and gracious Father, help us to have eyes like these children and help us also to just be overcome with joy and excitement at the good news and to be so excited that we too cannot contain ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would be in my words today. In Jesus' name, amen. So watching those kids also reminds me of a situation I'd, I'd seen before. A, a pastor was, uh, he came up and, and he was giving the, the children's lesson. And, uh, you know, just uh, the same kind of same time in the service or right at the beginning. And, and he started off this way. He said, if I sold my house and my car and had a big garage sale, and I gave it all to the church. I gave all that money to the church. Would I get into heaven? And this horde of children up front, they all go all at once, all at the same time with lots of excitement. No! And then he said, if I, if I cleaned the church every day and I mowed the yard and, and I kept everything nice and tidy and neat, would I get into heaven? And the, and the children did the same. They, they all shouted back at him and said, no! And so he scratches his head and he says, well, then what do I need to do to get into heaven? 
And there was a little five-year-old boy in the back, Kenny, and he raises his hand. And you know how kids are when they, they know something and they just got to tell you. When they know the answer to something, they're like, I finally know the answer to this. Oh, 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 call on me, call on me. And Kenny's in the back and he's jumping up and down and he's all excited. And and the the pastor kind of scans this fidgety mob of kids and and just he, he couldn't quite get to Kenny. And before he had locked eyes with Kenny, Kenny couldn't help himself. He couldn't contain him himself. And, and so to answer this question about what he needs to do to get into heaven, he goes, oh, oh, pastor, you got to be dead. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, this, this little kid's probably on his way now to becoming a reformed pastor, don't you think? I mean, he can't even spell ordo salutis, but he certainly seems to know how it works. Um, children certainly have a way of seeing the world through honest eyes. And they see things so differently than we do. Somehow we lose that eyesight when we grow up. And they tend to be very honest. They'll tell you what they think. They'll tell you when they're, uh, what they like and what they don't like. They're very honest that way. But it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand and to know that one of the things children love the most is story time. They love stories. And we have been listening to a story for the last couple months. A story that most of us have heard over and over again. The story of Joseph. In fact, Probably the first time you heard this story, you were a little kid. And we've talked about that, and we've, you know, we've talked about the plays and all of the, the, the ways that Joseph has been told the story. And now I want to unpack that a little bit. What makes this story so great? In fact, what makes any story great? You might recall from high school English lit that every story has a set of elements in common. Every good story has the same basic elements in common. They have a setup. They have a protagonist, in our case, Joseph. They have one or more antagonists, like Joseph's brothers, Potiphar's wife. They have conflict. Lots of conflict, and all this conflict ultimately leads to the grand climax of the story. And of course, a few weeks ago, we read about this climax. We read about that event in the story. And I believe it took place in Genesis 46.4 when Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers. And he says, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. And that is the climax. It's the turning point of the story. And if the story ended there, I think we'd be missing the most important part of the story. I mean, why are we telling this story anyway? It isn't about forgiveness, as it might seem on the surface. I think God has something much bigger in mind for us. The story needs a conclusion. 
And back in English lit, you might have learned to call this the denouement. This is a, a French word. It literally means the untying. In essence, it is the untying of the plot. All the conflict, all the complexity, all of the character development, suddenly you see the purpose, and the purpose is understood as the story is unwound before our eyes. In our case, in the case of this story, there are actually two plots converging in our passage today. That of Joseph and that of his father Jacob. Finally, we see them back together again. And together, their denouement is told for all of us. And that's where we are today. So now I want you to imagine yourself as a child. You get to regress a little bit back to your childhood days. And I want you to sit back as though you were settling back from the, ed the edge of your seat. You had just made it through all of that, uh, that climax, all of the, the tension between Joseph and his brothers. And now you're settling back to hear how the story ends. So I didn't include a, a notes page in your bulletin. Uh, sorry about that. That's my fault. So if you'll follow along with me either in your Bibles in uh, Genesis chapter 46, starting in verse 26, Genesis 46, verse 26, or you can follow along on the screen if you like. Genesis 46, verse 26. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. And he sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He prepared himself, or he, he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. So upon hearing the news that Joseph, his son, was not dead but alive and ruler in Egypt, Jacob wasted no time. He wasted no time in gathering everything he had and leaving his homeland. He gathered every son, every daughter, every grandson, granddaughter, every servant, every animal, every single possession he had. He picked it up, he packed it in the wagons that Joseph provided, and he headed for Egypt. And we learned last week that Jacob's reaction to the news that his son was alive was that he must go and see his son before he dies. Now, stories egg us on to use our imagination. And that's to both visualize the story and also to fill in some of the gaps. And so let me fill in one gap here. I tend to think that as Jacob gathered everything else and as he left behind his homeland, that he said, wait a minute, what am I doing? 
This is the land that God promised my father and his father. We're supposed to be a great nation here. What if I never return? Second thoughts are, are natural. That's what I would expect him to say. I've had them. You've had them. It is very normal for us to have second thoughts. In fact, it is very likely that that's what happened to Jacob because we read last week that God visited Jacob in a dream and God had to encourage him. And if Jacob was at all uncertain, God removed all of that doubt, as we learned last week, when he appeared to Jacob and he said, do not be afraid to go down into Egypt, for there I will turn you into a great nation. You see, God never promised that he would make them a great nation in the promised land. He just promised that their nation would inhabit it. So can't you at, at that point then identify with Jacob? I mean, haven't you at some point read into God's plan and instead of following God's plan, you make it your own plan? And uh, that, that's a normal thing for us to do. But now God speaks to Jacob and he says, listen, everything's going to be all right. I have a plan. He said, whatever doubts you may have, Jacob, you are Jacob. You are Israel. I am God, El Shaddai, the mighty God, and I have a plan. So now Jacob enters Egypt, and there's a, there's a little footnote here that I think is great. Judah is riding scout out ahead of Jacob and his caravan. And the image of Judah, this is a subtle and very beautiful detail. And as in every masterfully written story, we're seeing here perhaps a little prophecy, a little foreshadowing, maybe a sequel involving Judah. And of course, we know now that Judah guiding his people to salvation is no accident. And that it will be Judah's line from which the Messiah comes. And it will be Judah's line that guides us all to salvation. So this is a beautiful little detail to our story. And then we see next, we see Joseph running as fast as he can to be with his father and to meet his father once again in such an emotional reunion. Both father and son are completely overcome with emotion. And once again, I start to imagine... I get caught up, and we all get caught up then in the emotion that is, that is unfolding here before us. After all, we waded through all of that conflict and, and pain that each one of them endured to get to this moment. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, you might recall, Pastor Dave had, he had um, talked about, the, he had mentioned briefly about the, the reunion of a of a warrior coming home from, say, Iraq or Afghanistan, a soldier coming back and, and being reunited with his family. And, and perhaps that's an analogy we could use here, but I think at a level, that analogy is inadequate for what we're talking about, the level of emotion here. So I'll, I'll 
move us a little bit closer to Joseph and use a different analogy. How many of you remember the name Terry Waite? I don't see any young people putting their hands up. Um, January, oh, sorry if somebody was offended that I said, but uh, (laughs) January 1987, I was in high school. Um, January 1987, um, Terry Waite traveled to Beirut, Lebanon. He was an envoy to the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was uh, from England. And he traveled there to negotiate the release of several hostages that were being held by Islamic radicals. You remember that? And um, instead of securing their release, as he had hoped, he ended up getting captured and becoming a hostage himself. And it wasn't until November 1991 that he was released. Nearly five years later, Five years. In fact, it was 1,763 days exactly. 1,763 days of captivity. And in an article to the BBC, Terry said this. He said, I had no contact at all with my family for five years. They didn't know that I was alive or dead for about four years until the news got to them from a released hostage. He continued, I had to put my family and friends out of my mind. To dwell on them would have made me unnecessarily depressed. I was always concerned about them, and particularly about my children, the eldest of whom were in university. When Terry finally returned home, after nearly all hope had been abandoned, and he was believed dead, He describes his emotional reunion this way. He says, Then I left the hangar and thought, That's it. It's over. And I met my family for the first time, and it was quite emotional. My son, who was a teenager when I'd been captured, had now grown up, and I didn't recognize him. He'd changed so much. You see, the the complete reversal of circumstances from imprisonment to freedom, from assuming someone you love is dead, to seeing them alive in front of you, it has to be be completely, unbelievably overwhelming. So right here now in Genesis, is this just good drama? Is it good storytelling? It might be. But there's something else going on here. God can't fulfill his plan until this very moment. This is a part of his plan. Everything is leading up to this. I mean, go back and remember remember what we saw in Genesis 37. If you want to turn there, you can. This is when Joseph had his, um, his second dream. It was different than the first. Let's read it, starting in verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? 
and his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. And so I can imagine, I can picture Jacob at this moment. He looks at Joseph and he says, wow, son, you've grown. And he says it through tears. And maybe he suddenly recalled this story in his mind and he could see God's plan unfolding before him. And so now Joseph and Jacob finally back together again. But now comes the hard part. Integrating Joseph's family into Egypt. So we'll continue then in, uh, in chapter 46 uh, with verse 31. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock. And they have been brought, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You, you shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers. In order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. So now Joseph is asking Pharaoh a very big favor. Please let my people stay in Egypt. And Remember that Joseph, of course, is no longer that naive 17-year-old boy that his brothers knew. He very craftily and shrewdly devised a plan to protect Egypt from the famine, and not only protect Egypt from the famine, but to make the people of Egypt subject to Pharaoh even more so. And again, right here, he is acting very, very carefully. He knows exactly what he's doing. He took his family and he, he brought them straight to Goshen and he planted them there before he even went to Pharaoh. He was very careful about that. And so that way, um, he's prepared to ask Pharaoh what he wants. He also then re rehearses a surprisingly humble and unassuming response to Pharaoh's question, which he knew Pharaoh would ask. You see, Joseph is at this point an expert statesman. He is an expert chief of staff. He knows his boss very well. And so Pharaoh asks, common question, what do you do for a living? Now, if you were going in front of the President of the United States and he asked you that question, 
And, the, and, and your occupation was similar to that of Joseph's brothers. I mean, wouldn't you be tempted to embellish a little bit, just a little? I mean, instead of, uh, instead of just coming out with it, you might have said, well, we're entrepreneurs of the food industry. Or you might have said, we are cattle executives. Or you might have said, we create and sell organic dairy products. Or you might have said, we specialize in livestock marketing. Or I manage about 500 heads. We don't have to tell them it's heads of sheep. Um, you probably wouldn't have just come out and said, well, Mr. President, I'm a smelly old sheep herder. I just push around cattle all day or sheep all day, and I don't know anything else. And that's what I've been doing since I was little because that's what my father did and his father did. I mean, wouldn't you assume that this occupation would be rather unimpressive to the head, the leader of the free world, but for Joseph, after landing in such a lofty position and all the careful planning that he's done up to this point, why would he take then this very humble tack with Pharaoh? What could he possibly be doing to gain? Well, Joseph says right in our passage that shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. What does he mean by that? An abomination. Why would Egypt detest shepherds? Well, some have suggested that they didn't that that they just didn't like people who handled cattle. But I couldn't find anything in my research to support that. In fact, I found the complete opposite. There are plenty of tomb paintings and stone carvings in Egypt, plenty of archaeological evidence that shows that actually that complete opposite was true. Egypt was cattle country to Africa. That was, it was farming and it was cattle. That's what most Egyptians did. And it was probably one of the advanced, most advanced societies of that time. And they did it very well. In fact, their cattle industry was booming. It had been, they had been working it for thousands of years before Joseph even got there. So they knew what they were doing. There's even evidence that they were expert cattle breeders and that they knew exactly, they knew the science and they understood the science of breeding and they could control the type of cattle. So instead, I suspect that the Egyptians were more likely just very anal about their, their cattle business and that it's possible, given how meticulous they were, that they probably were, they, they didn't want an inferior product, an inferior product to come in and potentially affect their breeding line. It's also possible, it, there's some evidence that suggests that um, cows and cattle were the thing and sheep and goats were lesser. And so it's very likely that, um, that they were second-class citizens. And so, so that's the situation we're in. Now, we don't actually know what Joseph meant by that. What's probably most important here is that Joseph knew exactly what he was doing. And uh, he knew that one day he would have to leave Egypt. His people would have to leave Egypt. And so he likely wanted to give them a chance by settling them 
apart from the Egyptians. And he knew that this would do it. And he chose Goshen because it was on the Nile's delta, east of the river. In fact, about as far east as you could go and as far and as close to their homeland that they could be and still be in Egypt. It was the perfect place for them to be so they could sneak out if they needed to. And so imagine yourself now, you're a child of the Exodus and you've been sitting here and you're listening to this story and you had, and you had just kind of backed off from the edge of your seat after, after all of the, the tension of the climax. And, and now uh, you're hearing this part about how the story ends and you're gathered around Grandpa Moses. You and your brothers and sisters, and you're listening to him tell the story. You had just left Egypt not far, um, not long before this. And, and you hear how Joseph selected the land of Goshen 400 years ago. And perhaps you might have, you might have said, oh, oh, Grandpa Moses, I think I understand. Is that why we were in Goshen? that we've been in Goshen all this time, is that why we could leave in such a hurry? The denouement is now becoming real to you. It is now helping you understand what was the purpose of this whole story in the first place. And now we can see all the struggle and all the conflict. Joseph being sold as a slave, being sentenced as a criminal, being forgotten in jail, not to mention Israel suffering 400 years of slavery and oppression to the point in which your great-grandfather wouldn't have known anything else. That's how long we're talking. All of this has come to serve a purpose. And it has come to the careful orchestration of events that would one day enable a nation to debark from Egypt. And Pharaoh not only did what Joseph asked, he went above and beyond. And that is so, isn't that so typical of God to, you know, we think we know God's plan and then he goes above and beyond what we could expect. He, he not only let them stay, he actually, he, in essence, he let them settle and have ownership of the land. And he took their humble sheep business and he turned it into a national enterprise. Let's keep reading now, 47, verse 5. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Above and beyond. I, I'm not so sure Joseph saw that one coming. And this is not a menial task. I just said that the cattle business in Egypt was booming. This is a lot like the task Pharaoh gave Joseph. He put them in charge of the largest economic enterprise in the country. And there are, there are plenty of, of uh, records from Egypt that show that there was a very sophisticated administration process for cattle involving 
record keeping and a hierarchy of overseers and inspectors and shepherds and under shepherds and breeders. Um, this was a very big business. And Pharaoh just gave it all over to Joseph's family. But now we see that Joseph has introduced his brothers to Pharaoh to essentially show Pharaoh that they are capable of taking care of themselves. But now it's time for Pharaoh to meet Joseph's father. So let's keep reading in verse 7. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Now, I think it's interesting. Pharaoh didn't ask Jacob about his occupation. I mean, at a level that's been established here, but also... Um, Jacob's probably outlived his original profession. And now we recognize him as a patriarch, as a leader of this family. And in essence, Pharaoh was relating to Jacob in a way that he could only relate to him, and he couldn't relate to Joseph this way. He couldn't relate to Joseph's brothers this way. He was relating to him as a father. And Jacob carried himself in a way that commanded respect. Imagine walking in to the, to the courtroom of Pharaoh. And what does he do? He blesses Pharaoh. He blesses him. And Jacob answers Pharaoh in a humble way as a man that had been beaten down by his long, sad, hard life. And I imagine that that life played over in his mind as he's answering this question. And here's a man whose life was riddled with sin and sorrow and deceit. A man that God said would father a nation, and yet at this point he really had not acted like it. But now we see him blessing Pharaoh. Do you remember the story of Melchizedek? There's only about, I think it's eight verses in Genesis that introduce us to this character, Melchizedek. And he's, he's king of Salem, the Bible tells us, and they call him priest of the Most High. And he meets Abraham, and he blesses Abraham. And Paul describes this in Hebrews eleven seventeen, and he describes this blessing, and he says, the lesser is blessed by the greater. We are seeing at a level here in this story today, we're seeing an acknowledgement that Pharaoh is lesser than Jacob. Pharaoh is lesser than Jacob. And God's providence is on Jacob. He's not just being polite and saying, bless you, is to thank him for his generosity. Remember back in Genesis 12, God told Abraham, he said, that he would be a blessing to the nations. And now Jacob is literally bringing a blessing 
on Pharaoh, on Pharaoh's family, and on all of Egypt. Now, if Pharaoh had done what we're doing today, if Pharaoh engaged in storytelling about this blessing, if he passed this down from generation to generation, from dynasty to dynasty in Egypt, if he had passed the story of this blessing down, then imagine what might have happened. Imagine then what that perhaps Egypt could have recognized the consequences of losing that blessing when Moses came and the plagues came upon Egypt. Because the plagues were a sign to them that the God of Jacob was greater than Pharaoh, who himself was a God. And in fact, that the God of Jacob was greater than Pharaoh's gods. So now, here we are in the presence of a worldly king. And could it be that Jacob, for the first time, he sees himself as God sees him. And he enters Pharaoh's throne room with complete confidence. I mean, could it also be that Jacob's confidence was in, it was in God, of course, but also at a level in the accomplishments of his son, after all, his um, uh, his son is second only to this man that he's going to see. So Joseph, in essence, then, is acting as a type of Christ here. And he's prepared the way for all of Israel, just like our Lord Jesus has prepared a way for us. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says, uh, chapter 4, verse 14, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with your weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence... Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. So like other great stories, it's not just a story, but it's a lesson. And no matter, I want you to understand this, no matter how messed up and twisted and pathetic you may think, your life is, how sad your life may seem to you. Jesus has gone before you. And he's offered a gift that you cannot. His blood. And now in return, you having done nothing at this point, you can draw near to the throne. And like Jacob, you can be in the presence of kings. Kings. Knowing the king of kings died for you. So as Jacob now leaves Pharaoh's presence and blesses him once again, and he leaves, he leaves a complete man, not made so by Pharaoh, but by God. And Pharaoh sees this, 
And Jacob sees this, and Jacob blesses Pharaoh. So now as our story completely unties, we see Jacob settling into the twilight of his life. We'll continue reading in verse 11. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their descendants. Now imagine again, the children all gathered around Grandpa Moses. And as he finishes this part of the story, and he pauses. All the children now are quiet and reflective. All the fidgetiness has gone away. And they're quiet. You can hear a pen drop. And then there's a little child in the back like Kenny. And he goes, oh, 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 Grandpa Moses, Grandpa Moses. Grandpa Moses. And, and he's raising his hand as loud as he can, or as high as he can. And, and now Moses turns to him and says, now, young man, quiet down. Put your hand down. It's okay. I'll get to you. And Kenny puts his hand down. But, you know, he can't contain himself because he's figured it out. And he's going. And so his hand, even though it's down, you know, it's elbows pinned down to his waist, but his hand's still going up. Oh, please, you've got to call on me. And so Moses finally says, yes, child, what is it? We had to settle in Goshen for God to make us who we are today. God had a plan all along. Moses says, yes, son, that's right. You see, Israel had to endure 400 years in Egypt in order to become a great nation. If they had been left in the promised land, imagine what would have happened. We've seen it. They, they couldn't help themselves. They would marry the locals. They would essentially contaminate their family line. And there would be no difference between them and all the people around them. There would be no nation. They'd be in the, they'd be in the promised land, but there would be no nation. And instead, God brought them to Egypt into a place where they were very careful, where the Egyptians were very careful not to contaminate themselves. And instead, Egypt turned out to be the perfect place to create a new nation. The Egyptians wouldn't socialize with them. They wouldn't intermarry with them. Israel would be left alone and isolated. And this is the only way that you can take these 70 shepherds and put them someplace and leave them in Egypt, and then they could leave Egypt as a nation of more than 2 million people. So what God is telling us, what he is encouraging us in the story is this. He's saying, I have a plan. And it is a great plan. And you need to trust me. And you're a part of it. Some of you came here today, and I think you're feeling a lot like Jacob. A little bit worn out and tired. I don't think the heat helps much. In fact, you probably struggled with whatever events happened here over the last couple of days, and, and you're just dragging yourself in. You're not like those little kids that came running down and over here 
for prayer this morning. You just don't have that excitement, that spring in your step. And you're struggling to understand what possible purpose does God have for all of my trials? Why can't I get out of that rut? Why must I always keep repeating the same sinful cycle over and over and over again? Why all of the pain in my life? Why must I be so lonely in a place with so many people? It's sometimes very hard to understand God's plan in the midst of all the pain and agony of human experience. And it took Israel 400 years to see why God put them through slavery and oppression. 400 years. Ten generations. I used to think this story was about patience. I used to get that lesson from the story. And, and I would reflect on Joseph being in prison for two years. And as it turns out, the story is not about that. The story is about waiting and hoping. And potentially hoping over the course of your life and never seeing the events actually come to fruition that you've been waiting for. But God, through the use of this story, and what a great story it is, but let's not tell it like it's just a good story. It was so important. It was encouraging them. And God so much encourages His people. And later on, when God sent them into exile for 70 years, He encouraged them through the prophet Jeremiah. He said, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon Me and come and pray to Me and I will hear you. You will seek Me and find Me. When you seek Me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. He encourages them. And he also encourages us through the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Brothers and sisters, take courage. Take hope. If you know Jesus, you are called according to His purpose. Know that God is with you, that He sent His Son ahead of you, and that His plan is greater than you could possibly imagine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, sometimes we just, we, we desire entertainment. And we love to be entertained by a good story. But so often, a good story is meant for more than that. And You gave us the story of Joseph 
to encourage us, to remind us that your plan extends across the cosmos. Your plan extends across all time. And sometimes we're a little bit then rocked back by that, knowing that we may never see the end of the plan. We may never see our purpose. But Lord, help us to trust You. Help us to remember that You have a purpose for us. Please encourage us today. Help us to encourage one another. In Your Son's name we pray.